Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Ricardo Nuila, a practicing physician and associate professor at Baylor College of Medicine in Texas. He just released his debut book. It's called The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. The book follows five uninsured Houstonians as their struggle for survival leads them to Ben Taub, an infamous public hospital in Houston. Today, Ricardo and I talk about how he found patients whose stories he wanted to tell, the way he thinks about the healthcare debate, and how he approaches being both a doctor and a writer. Our book club pick for July is Watchmen by Alan Moore with illustrations from Dave Gibbons. I'll be discussing the book on Wednesday, July 26th with Joel Christian Gill. Quick reminder, everything we talk about on each episode of The Stacks can be found in the link in the show notes. If you want more of The Stacks, join The Stacks Pack. It's just $5 a month and you get our monthly bonus episodes, our virtual book club meetups, and our phenomenal community over on Discord. We have a great time and dig deeper into our book club reads, share recommendations, and we even talk about a little reality TV. So if you want to join the fun or just want to support the stacks and make it possible for me to do this show every single week, head to patreon.com slash the stacks and join. Shout out to our newest members of the stacks, Melanie Schlosser, Danielle, Kathy Fox, Lynn Loves Books, and Goofy Joe. Thank you all so much. And thank you to the entire stacks pack. Now it's time for my conversation with Ricardo Nuila. All right, everybody. I'm really excited today. I'm joined by Ricardo Nuila. He is the author of The People's Hospital, Hope and Peril in American Medicine. Ricardo, welcome to the Sacks. So great to be here, Tracy. Thanks for having me. I'm just so excited to talk to you. I just, this book really surprised me in like the best way. I wasn't sure. I saw it on a list. I wasn't sure about it. And then I picked it up and I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is very good, Uh, (laughs) which is uh uh-oh in a good way. But you know, sometimes you're like, oh, we'll see. And then you're like, whoa, I like this. Um, So in about 30 seconds or so, can you just tell folks what your book is about? It's about five people who I met at the hospital we work at, Bentop Hospital, which is a public hospital in Houston, Texas. And their stories of not having received health care because they're uninsured or underinsured, they end up at the public health care system. Their stories are interwoven for me to piece together why public health care is actually can work in America. And you are a doctor. Yes. Of internal medicine. Mm-hmm. And you're a writer. Yes, 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 I am. Uh, you know, both of those, I feel like I 
started off in medicine and then really kind of toward college, I was like, I really want to be a writer. Hmm. And I, and at the time they felt so opposed that by the, I, I was an English major. By the end of that, I had applied to medical school and I was just like, I cannot go into medicine because I'm just going to have to give up writing. I went to one of my writing professors and I told him I got into medical school, but I think I'm going to leave that ad, uh, that admission. And he said, "You'd be crazy to leave medicine." Wow. <laughs> and and I and you know, it's he gave me some advice that I've had to turn over many many years. But he said, "You can find work on technique in graduate school for writing, but where are you going to get your stories? You can get your stories in medicine." Mm. And that kind of set me off. And and really, it's been the last. 20 something years have been about like bringing those together as one. And I really do see them as one now. I see it like when I'm practicing on the wards, especially at a place like Ben Taub, to me, it feels like I'm working on my writing also. And when hmm. I'm working on writing, I feel like I'm working on the skills that help me when I'm on the wards. Okay, this is a real nitty gritty question. And I think maybe I'm only asking this because people people know this. And I just told you this, my my husband, Mr. Stacks, he's a doctor. So my question is, if you were an English major, when did you take all the chemistry classes that you have to take to be to get to be a doctor? Those were all my electives, basically. Uh, I mean, it was basically I, so I started off and I just biology was just not hitting it for me just because it was so okay. memorizing. And mm -hmm. so and I drifted toward English and I said, I'm just going to be an English major and try to, and, and you know, and I had to sacrifice some things. I really wanted to study abroad, but I just couldn't with pre-med. Mm -hmm. So you, you find a way to do it, but you know, it was, it was like electives are your pre-meds basically. Okay. Let's talk about the book. I'm sorry. I'm gonna, <laughs> I have sorry. so many questions for you. I'm going to try to keep it on the book, but I, you know, I just, I'm obsessed with you basically. So oh, let's start here. Who, when you were putting this book together, who did you envision that your audience was? Who were you writing to? Well, in a very direct way, I was writing to my editor because she was one of the first people who just knew the project from the absolute beginning. And I, she had worked with other writers that I, you know, basically revere. And I knew Your that editor she, is Kathy Belden. Yes, Kathy Belden, who I PSA I, Layman, Jasmine Ward, yes. Fana. She is she's the gold standard of editors to me. She's the best. And she loved this from the very beginning. I mean, she, mm -hmm. you know, we put out the proposal and she made a phone call like the moment that she read it and wow. she carried it through and and we had gone through a lot of times together because this was not an easy book to write. Uh, mm -hmm. there, I had the I had the conversation with her at one point where she's like, "You got to stop." This happened the day before Thanksgiving one year. I <laughs> I turned in like maybe a third of a manuscript, and she was like, "She was like, I'm trying to be nice about this, and I just the way I'm nice is I'm direct. You just got to stop and restart." She was exactly right. I needed mm. that reset with this. Mm. Uh, but so in a in a very you know, direct way, I was thinking about her because I knew I know that she had built her ear to match the general audience of the United mm -hmm. States and, and and readers like you, like like people who love good books. But you know, I was also I was I was not thinking about doctors. I was I was consciously thinking this is not for doctors, mm -hmm. but doctors should have access to it. Mm -hmm. I was consciously thinking this is not for policymakers, but policymakers should be uh, should have access to it. I was consciously mm -hmm. thinking this is not like for the choir of people who are, you know, possibly saying, you know, like uh, 
Medicare for all uh, because mm-hmm. because I wanted it to be in the middle where it could bring two different political sides together. So I kind of, it it was more instead of envisioning uh, one reader, I was trying to think of like ping ponging between a lot of different readers. Like writing in like the cracks between or like in the Venn diagram of it all. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned there's about five patients that you focus or there's five patients that you focus on in this book. Um, And then with that, you also weave in sort of the history of the medical industry, what you call Medicine Inc., and specifically Houston's medical system and and specifically the public hospital that's been top, which is sort of like your sixth character in the book. And I'm wondering, how did you source your patients. What does that conversation look like? Once you, you know, you connect with them, you're like, this is a story that I want to tell. What do you ask them? What do they say back to you? How do you even know that the patient is the right patient to tell your story with you? Yeah, that's a great question. And it took me a while to figure it out. But you know, this book wasn't I didn't have a thesis going into writing this book where I was like, I need to look for patients who fit these ideas. It was the the initial concept was like, I want to artistically render these lives and these patients' struggles for healthcare and what the healthcare system does. So it was more like the when I was working with patients, that camaraderie, that rapport, something clicked. And I was Mm. just like, okay, you know, there's I could start to see certain things on the page, for instance, you know, like for somebody like Stephen, the opening, he was such an open book. He said mm-hmm. things, we had this banter that was both, you know, discussing our political differences, but at the same time joking around. And I was mm-hmm. like, wow, that looks good on the page, you know, I started. So, <laughs> so it was, it was more like once you start to, once I started to kind of visualize that this could work to tell a side of that, of Ben Taub and public health care that, you know, people don't know about. And that's another thing. I just, there's a, there's a feeling that goes off in me. That's just like, wow, I didn't know that. And if I don't know it, I'm pretty dang sure that nobody else knows it. Right. Like in the public, it's, it's so much like how we're interacting with it, with how I'm interacting with patients, like the trust. And then I, 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 I tell them what's on my mind. I say, listen, your story really resonates with me for these reasons. And I can't help but think, of how your story might be valuable, like to mm-hmm. the greater context of how healthcare, how we understand healthcare, and it could help out other people. If and I give them examples of how I've I've written like this before. I'll print it out, and and I also explain like my number one responsibility is as your doctor. This is right. secondary. I need to get author. You know, the there's there's privacy laws. I need to get. You know, I, we would if for for this to happen, we would have to get authorization where you understand that I'm giving some of your private health information out. But if you authorize that and you trust me, you know that has that process is happen. It doesn't happen like off the bat. I don't like go into right. I haven't like read a chart and like, hey, I don't know you, but you'd be great <laughs> for a book. You know, it's more like it's happened like on the third, fourth time that we've met and like they've seen me work. We've, we've already had multiple occasions. So trust is a huge part of it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and that's how it goes. And then do you let them read what you've written? Yes. I tried to give them every, 
you know, with uh, with Stephen, for instance, it was the book that I gave him to mm-hmm. to, to read, and same with Christian, um, and some of the other patients. There were articles that were predecessors to I that see. segment in the book, and I and I and I would give them the the articles. That's that's always the standard that I. Now I do want it to go through the whole process. You know, I don't. Got it. I don't want it. I don't want to give them what I've written while it's still in process. And like and drafts. Drafts, yeah. That's you know, and you know, nobody's really asked me for drafts, but mm-hmm. and and to be and that's one of the things that really kind of um, hit hit home with me once with Roxana. One, you know, that. I brought her like a finalized draft. And I mean, she just had so much else on her mind with her own life that it was just like, right. it's just not as, it, it, you know, it, what we might think like, what I might think like, oh, here's this, you're going to be very interested in how I think about you and the whole, she's like, well, I have my, I have my own. Yeah. Problems. She's like, I have a life going on. Yeah. Here. Yeah. So it's, totally. it's, which, which is like the eye openers that all of us, mm-hmm. that I need, that all of us need from time, you know, a lot of times, right. but it's just like, that's, I, it is always the standard that I'd like, I, my, my goal is to give people what, what I've written. Right. Okay. You write this book about medicine, patients, Medicine Inc., your experience. It's a little memoir too. What do you feel like you're able to bring to this conversation as a doctor that maybe is missing from the current discourse or maybe like a medical historian or a reporter or a public health policy person is not able to bring. And then the flip of that is where do you think you're limited in your abilities to tell this kind of story? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, Part of me is just doesn't feel that strong identity of a doctor. You know, huh. you you said at the very beginning, it's like you're a writer, you're a doctor, and 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 I can tell that there's some of my colleagues feel the identity of being a doctor so strongly that it's almost like I think that allows me to look at the history and the problem that doctors are a part of this whole problem. Unfortunately, and it's it's so complex because I think like I don't know. 80 to 90% of people go in for such great reasons and they're stuck mm-hmm. in a system where they mm-hmm. can't do anything about mm-hmm. it. But, but at the end of the day, doctors as a whole have had issues, uh, have had, have blocked universal health care in America. Those, those are facts, you know? Right, right. And so I feel like since I'm not so strongly bound to that identity, I can, I can say mm. that. I can say that. And I think that the identity of writing is, is, allows me to just kind of deal with the actual problem of healthcare rather than one of those, you know, like the doctor identity or like the hospital identity, you know, Um, that's, that's one of the things. I think that it's also, you know, being Latino and being, having the, the ability to speak the language of a lot of my patients, build that rapport. I can, tap into those stories a little bit where mm-hmm. um, it might be, I think that that's unique because I can, I, I think there's a lot of Central American doctors who, who but, and, 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 and Mexican doctors. But what I mean to say is, is just that I care very deeply to hear people's stories. And I, and it's like my initial impetus is to put it in writing in this mm-hmm. kind of like book. So 
I think that that's that like that's one of the unique things that I bring to the table. But in you know that brings with it that sometimes you know I'm not as swayed by the scientific portions of 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 medicine. You know, like for mm-hmm. instance, I think that um sometimes I really have to step back and say like wow, I mean, what, what's going on here is amazing. Like medicine is an amazing, you know, it, this is all very, very difficult to do, you know, orchestrate right. like the blood tests and like the procedures, all of this involves exactitude and science and everything. And like, we have to allow for some level of inefficiencies when all of these like real engineered systems are working all at once, you know, and sometimes I feel like because my side is so much geared toward that, the philosophy, philosophical, hum, mm-hmm. you know, uh, side of humanities, side of medicine, maybe I can, I can, I can not pay as much heed as I need to, to like the scientific portions of it. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Um, okay. So the first note I took when I read your book, it's, it's very early. Let me find it. Page four. Mm-hmm. We're in the introduction here, I think. And we're talking about medical costs and, this question, I don't know if I just missed the answer in life or if it doesn't have an answer, but there's so much talk about how this will cost $7 billion or this thing, this costs $150,000 for a C-section or whatever. Mm-hmm. These things that have medical procedures or medical healthcare related costs. Who slash how are these costs calculated. Because one of the things that is in the book is like the price of medicine is different for different people in different places. So when the government says it will cost $25 trillion, how are these costs calculated? And then how are, because so much of the book is like Ben Taub saved X, Y, and Z millions of dollars. But is that based on what it costs Ben Taub to do it or what it costs a private hospital or what yeah. it generates, like where do those numbers come from? Who calculates them? How do they work? That's, that's such a great question because there's not a, a like a standard answer for that. Okay. What I could, what I could tell you is that like, for instance, when it comes to the operations at a public hospital, there are, you can track the exact money that went from property taxes to the county and you can say that like this afforded like operations for this and then you can take the number of patients and you can divide it and you can say yes that's but when you start to talk about the costs of healthcare that start to go into the private world you're starting to talk about like also how like some people formulate that according to like what they want something to cost so that they can make profit <laughs> you know what i mean and so right it's right, right. and it's and and that's variable based on what they can make off of depending on the insurance companies, the, the insurance plans. It's, it's, it's so complicated that um, I think that certainly like some health economists that I talked to would have much better answers to that mm-hmm. than, than me, but it doesn't pass the sniff test for me where it's like, you. so can there's just... not like an exact, there's not an actual number of like uh, a Taver procedure costs. $75,000. It's no, because it's because the, you know, the surgeon's costs could be different depending and uh, the hospital costs 
I mean, maybe a hospital could derive a cost. And, and I think with transparency laws, like hopefully down the line, they're not really haven't they haven't kicked in so strongly where we can trust it that much. But like they can say, you know, Taver will cost like, you know, what well, I don't know, like eighteen thousand dollars or something like that, because if we if you take all but remember that it's it's it, it also boils down to like human beings are all so specific and it's really mm-hmm. hard to come down to like an average cost of Tavor for like a patient, like for, for even 10 patients, because within that realm, some of those patients will need extra units of blood. Some of those people will need like consultations. Some of those will, will need, will have some, you know, you might even have a hospitalist like me who says, I want to keep that person in the hospital extra amount of time to make sure, you know, there's so many different variables. Now, of course, at the end of the day, they can probably take that and do an average but that's still within the realm of like the variability of like how much, you know, the hospital, the, 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 what's dynamic also is like the contracts that hospitals have with insurance company. All these things are just dynamic. And so right. it's so hard to pinpoint, you know? Okay. So there's not, so there's not, I didn't miss the answer. And you didn't I, miss the I, answer. You didn't miss the <laughs> okay. answer. I feel a little better about myself. Okay. I want to talk about Ben Taub because I learned so much about like public, private, hospitals and sort of how that works. And obviously people, you need to go read the book, but Ricardo, would you mind just sort of like giving us a general understanding of like what Ben Taub hospital is and how it is different from what people might know or understand of other hospitals? Yeah. So I grew up in Houston and I grew up, you know, upper middle class. And when I heard the words Ben Taub over the radio, it was like, somebody's in a car crash or there was a shooting, the victims were taken to Ben Taub Hospital. And I didn't even know that it was the teaching hospital for one of the major uh, teaching school, uh, medical schools in the city. So to me, when growing up, it was like, this is where, you know, people who get, who, who undergo trauma or who get shot, go to, go, go to this hospital, Ben Taub Hospital. And it's true that it has a really good reputation for Trauma, but what I learned is is that it is a hospital that is funded in large part by property taxes paid for by people in Harris County to care for people who can't, who don't have access or can't afford healthcare, which is becoming an increasing amount of people and a huge variety of people. It's not what it was 20, 30 years ago where it's purely the uninsured or the people who can't find work or don't have work for because work is pe- pegged to insurance in our country and so what bentob is is like the it's it's a and it's also an academic healthcare system which means that the medical schools staff it and in teaching medicine they are following scientific guidelines they're trying to make it so that it's as close to science as, 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 as possible, you know, I know, and not like not everything can be done according to science, but that's like, that's the goal. So what you find at Ben Taub hospital is that you have like less of the fat that we see in the private healthcare. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. if you've ever been in private health, if you've ever been to a hospital, you've most likely been to a private hospital and you might wonder, do I really need that test? Do I really need X, Y, Z? Do I really <laughs> need that study? You know, Bentob Hospital, because it is like a fixed, uh, you know, um, budget, and because it is 
an academic medical center, it's like basically medicine that is directed at what is needed rather than that extra portion of what is profitable. And <laughs> that is something that really had to work through for many years to understand the difference. And so I think that uh, what I found was what's interesting is a lot of people who go use the public system in Houston, they like it. They mm -hmm. like it because the system, since it's not geared toward profit, it just puts a focus on medicine. I feel mm -hmm. like I can focus on medicine. And it also cuts away that extra sort of, you know, that, that extra layer of profitability that I think a lot of Americans maybe feel in healthcare. Can people who are insured go to a Bentob type hospital? Yes, and it but it depends on the the insurance. Like for instance, many people with Medicare and Medicaid go to Bentop. In fact, that's one of the other big funders is like people who are uh, who have the, those insurances and other insurances too. There is like a there is a uh, a nonprofit insurance in Houston that is utilized by patients. But there are, but the system, because it's trying, its mission is to care for many of the people who can't afford health care, it will not accept certain insurances so that those people can be, you know, taken care of at private hospitals. Now, the right. difficulty with that is, is that those, the private hospitals are not accepting some of those insurances. So there's this like huge dynamic. It's always, it's, it's, it's always, it's so, it's so much in flux, you know, and, mm -hmm. and unfortunately our patients, all patients have to withstand that. And that's what, that's what the real story of American medicine is, is that it's all, it's not patient centered, you know, and, right. it's, and, right. and, and that's the problem. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. I have some of my big, tough questions for you on the other side. Get awesome. ready. <laughs> <laughs> Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. 
BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. All right, everybody, we're back. So here's my first big tough question for you. What are slash are there any solutions that could be implemented now that have outsized impact that hospitals doctors, uh, hospital administrator people could implement that would not need to be like a govern, a, a United States government thing, like, yeah. are there, or, or even local politicians, like what are things that could be implemented now that could help patients and people get access to healthcare? That's not like waiting on Joe Biden or whoever to say universal healthcare for all. I think that, first of all, knowledge of how things are working right now. For instance, nonprofit hospitals have this nom- this moniker, they're nonprofit. And so a lot of people think that, you know, that they are not really trying to bring money into their system. However, mm-hmm. it's, it's many of them operate like for profit. So one thing that we could do is really make sure that they are providing the amount of charity care that the United States government is asking them to provide Mm. for their tax benefit. So that would mean like auditing and things like that. That's, that's kind of a higher level thing. I think also, I mean, I think if you're talking about on an individual level, I think, I think we all have to get to the point of asking ourselves like where, when are we over consuming healthcare and when Mm. are we, are we consuming it correctly? If you're going, are you going to your primary care doctor? You know, are, when, you, when you have a problem, when you have a medical problem, you ask yourself, does this really need to be an emergency? Or is this something that I, I'm just like pressed for time with? You know, because mm. if we are not going through the system of primary care for referrals and everything like that, that does add costs, marginal costs at the at the emergency room level. If we're going hmm. straight to specialists, you know, I think that that can lead to an inefficiency. And so we are seeing a lot of that in, in healthcare that is just this excess. The excess that the people who have access to healthcare that they consume affects the way that the people who do not have healthcare access it. 
So I think that some of it does entail that we need to look at ourselves in the mirror and see like what, how is it? Now that's a very privileged thing to say as a doctor and somebody who doesn't require care. And I, and I, right. and I know that that's really tough, but, but I also think that there is, you know, something in there for us to really kind of conceive of that, you know, but, right. but I think that we also need to, we need to really start to think about how we mix public and private. You know, mm-hmm. at the local level, for instance, in Houston, there is a bond. There's going to for the next year, there's going to in November on, on the ballot is going to be whether or not to amplify the public health care system and make it bigger. Mm-hmm. So make hospitals like Bentop bigger. And I think that, you know, as voters, we usually appro- appro- approach these bonds and we, we don't know what's going on. And we sort of like. But so we need to really kind of understand what's going on and think about that the future should be a mixture between public and private and how to bring those together. Okay, let me ask you about private hospitals then. So one of the things you talk about in the book is that public hospitals sort of lift the burden off of private hospitals because like if the public hospitals didn't, my understanding is if the public hospitals didn't exist, the private hospitals would have to take on some of these people due to legal legalities. Like a, a pregnant woman has to get care wherever she goes in or whatever. So if she doesn't have access to a public hospital, that is a burden, air quotes, on the private hospital. The other thing you talk about is how, like, people who need transplant surgeries or, like, really expensive surgeries or prosthesis in this case, um, Mm -hmm. in one of the cases in your book, they don't have access to that because it's limited for people who can pay for it, essentially. So my question is, why do public hospitals lift the burden off of private hospitals and private hospitals don't reciprocate in some way by donating? Is it just, is it just like a capitalism thing where yes. it's just like, fuck you, we're just here to make money, we don't care? Un- unfortunately, it kind of boils down to that. And I don't think okay. that I've talked to some people who are, you know, on that side of it. and it's And it's not like they are like, you know, twisting the ends of their mustaches and counting like the cents sure. that are going in, but they're just in that, you know, like in the mode of like, you're, imagine you're in a, in, in a large hospital system that's private and you see like, you know, the people around you have new jobs and, and, and their jobs are really focused on like, you know, making sure that the patients are eating the right things and, and everything. But it's like, that's still based on like growth within that system, that private healthcare system. Mm-hmm. So it's like you're mm-hmm. adding, you know, and it's not the same as like a like one larger system where we can kind of determine what are the needs, what are the really startling needs on one side and give to those needs, right? So yeah. the point, I think the, the like the point is, is that, you know, on the private side, Yes, like the hospitals are supposed to provide charity care. That's what the government has like said, but it's not enforcing it, right? It's not mm. really enforcing it. It's not auditing it. It's not really putting those people to the fire. And, and the reason why private hospitals feel like that the public hospitals will take off the burden is, is really for emergency care in the law, EMTALA, Emergency Medical Treatment and, and Labor Act, which is like that any person can go into that private hospital for an emergency reason and have their care stabilized. It, it's, it's just that so many of some in Texas, especially where like around 23% of the people are un, uninsured. If you walk into a private hospital and you really have an emergency, you know, you're going to you might stay there for a long. So the private, uh, you know, the 
those private hospitals want a public hospital to take over that care, you know, right? so that they don't feel like they're losing like all that money. And unfortunately, that's a philosophical thing. You know what I mean? They, they, it's like the pure, and that's what I mean. It's just like, do you look at your hospital system as just your hospital system or part of a huge environment that is trying to help the health of everybody? Right. Mm. And I feel like the, if you are in a nonprofit healthcare system, you're looking at your clients. Mm -hmm. You're not looking at every, you you know, it's like, oh, it's, they can't afford to be in, in, in art, you know, but we need to have a whole new philosophy where, you know, we're trying to take care of everybody because that person's can come into the emergency room and change change the whole way dynamic and how we give healthcare. But yeah, at the end of the day, that is cap. That is like that we're just kind of like extremely capitalistic. You know, that's right. unfortunately that's the problem. I feel like is I'm not. Uh, you know, it's hard to say like let's take capitalism down a couple notches because people will say, "What are you saying?" Like you know, right, take right. it all away. But it's like. But one of the things that I feel like I learned from this book is, is that we are in an extreme system, an mm-hmm. extreme system on the private and capitalistic side. And we feel that every time we get a bill from the hospital or from a doctor's mm-hmm. group or when the insurance company, we are feeling that extreme nature of that. And we've become inured to it. And that is a huge problem. OK, you said so many things that I have questions about, but <laughs> I, I want to just quickly ask you. I don't know. This might be an unfair question. So you can just say fuck you if you hate it. But <laughs> you mentioned before that the solution is private and public hospitals. So is that different than like universal health care, like public health care? Like is is that not a truly viable option for the United States? I think that it depends. So, you know, there's other models where we just say we have one insurance and mm-hmm. hospitals can operate privately. And that insurance is big enough where all the hospitals are going to want to take that insurance. And that's mm-hmm. like Medicare for all, for instance, you know, that's okay. like basically like one insurance for everybody, you know, and that's that's kind of like how Canada operates. But right. what Houston's model where I've worked in public, the public healthcare system is a little bit more like uh, like national health service from the UK on mm-hmm. a smaller local scale, which means that. No, it's not about insurance. It's about like we are going to we're going to make the hospitals and we're going to pay the providers and you can go to those that hospital if you need to, you know, uh, mm-hmm. because it's for everybody. But if you want to pay more, then there will be private hospitals that are apart from that. I'm a my my con- there's been some people who have written to me about like, well, you you're not in favor of Medicare for all. You lost me. And, and I get that. But. My concern is just that the history of like American healthcare is, is that like the private entities have found workarounds anytime that we've Mm -hmm. had, like uh, when it's been insurance based, our solution and our solution would be like, you know, we're going to have an insurance for everybody. But, you know, when Medicare was started in 1960, unfortunately, the way that it was written, doctors started to bill it, you know, just gratuitously. And that's one of the reasons why healthcare costs went up. And so I'm a little bit wary that the way that the, like something like Medicare for all will be written will a exclude some people. And so it won't be for all and B 
that it will it like those special interests will get a hold of that legislature, you know? I see. So I'm also wary that like the, the special interests, like the private side is so strong that I just don't think mm-hmm. they'll relinquish control. So I feel like it's almost like we as a public need to compete with them. And that's why, you know, for instance, okay, a lot of people put it in Houston, Texas. Like I think that some of the private health care people in Houston, Texas know that the public system can compete with them. The more that people learn that mm-hmm. I don't need to pay excess money to go there. I can go to the public system, you know, uh, they lose, they lose uh, potential clients. So right. that's where I feel like that's, that's just my kind of cynical view of like the way mm-hmm. that we extract ourselves from this huge mess where it's like so corporate is by the public competing with right. the corporations. That's why I... I kind of tend toward, and also because I have experiences in something like an NHS on a smaller side that we need to have like a, a healthcare system for all that is like public based and that will compete with the private side. Yeah. Okay. I hear that. There's a conversation in your book sort of about, which is connected to this is like, what do people who have public insurance deserve? Um, what kind of healthcare, you know, it's like, they can get basic health care, but we talked, I said this before, like they can't get a transplant or something. Right. And well, it depends on what yeah, the Medicaid and it's Medicare, tr- they, it's, yeah. it's, it's really hard. It's extremely hard, but Medicaid and Medicare do pay for a lot. You know, Medicare pays for a ton of kidney transplants and Medicaid will pay for like liver transplants in Texas. So it's just, but, but the rules on who gets Medicaid are so state driven, you know, it's so difficult to say like, well, who qualifies for Medicaid? So it's, it's really hard to parse through that. And so like, ultimately this question about like who can get access and who can get care and all of this stuff is like a, a super moral judgment of like who is deserving or worthy. And how do we shift that conversation? Like, yeah, is it possible? I it just feels like I'm reading about these people and I'm I'm sure you feel this as you're writing about them and and treating them. And you're like these are people that I'm growing to have feelings for, like care about and they have families and they are both good and bad people and they have done good and bad things and they are sick and they need help. And the question becomes are they worthy because they do not have a job or were not born here and therefore they should be on hospice even though they're not dying. Like, I just, I don't know. I just, it feels like very helpless that that's that's the conversation. It's like who deserves to be taken care of because if it's your mom or your brother, you feel like it's them. Like (laughs) you want him to be taken care of. So I don't know. It's not even really a question. I'm just kind of curious your thoughts about it. Yeah. I I mean, my thoughts are that I try to put on my, my hat of moderating between both political sides about this because I'm really interested in forging like unity because I just don't think like I, first of all, in my mind, it's just like you, if you argue on one side and you're not making headway, then what's the use of arguing? That's kind of like, Mm -hmm. you know, so part of me thinks like that, like the discussions about healthcare as a human right are are in the wrong direction. Hmm. And it's, and part of it's just because a like American healthcare should not be a human right because American healthcare is like, aimed toward profitability, unfortunately, you know, it's like, but, but I understand, but I, 
I live and I and I understand the the like a principle that if somebody is in need and we're in a wealthy country, we should help those people out. You know, so it's 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 weird how the rhetoric can take us away from things. You know, like right. You know, the, the, so what I would say is like let's consider like maybe ways to bring together is to think about like what are we all you know sacrificing by being in the system and i think that one of them is this is this complex we 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 live in this incredibly complex system of healthcare where we have to determine who's eligible who's worthy how much they earn we're sacrificing simplicity which is like when you look at something like the uk everybody's covered everybody's just right. covered and you just go to that to that clinic you have a clinic right there and everybody's covered and yes there are problems with it it's not, but, but, but I want people, I think people should know that we are like beating ourselves up to make things more complex because we are trying mm-hmm. to divvy it up in like what we consider is fair. And by divvying it up, we are eliminating, we're eliminating the possibility of healthcare for a lot of other, for a lot of people and making it hard for those who even have it. Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe one of the things that we, one of the ways we can is just to say, what can we gain from a different health? And, and I think simplicity is one of them. It's like, you're just mm-hmm. covered. You're just covered. Mm-hmm. If it's a public good, we don't have to say that it's a human right. We can just say that we can all agree that it's just helpful for everybody to be <laughs> covered, you know? And that, and, yeah. and, and, you know, it's like, we don't say that like roads are a human right, but, right. but we know that they're good in, to a, overall, you know, for everybody. And I think that that's, if we can kind of forge paths in that direction where it's just like, you know, like maybe hopefully we can, that's the moderation that could bring these sides together because that's ultimately the only way it's going to happen is if like people, political sides come together and start to think big ideas together like that. Yeah. Um, One of the things that struck me I don't know, made me mad, made me really sad, made me just like feel yucky is a story you tell about a patient who comes in and um, she, they tell you she has like a UTI or something um, and you go to your little pocket medicine book and you're like, you know, looking for answers in my book. You're, you're a young doctor at this point. You're yeah. like trying to make sure you like hit all the steps, you know, you're like, exactly. let me just check this out. And you're like, I don't think it's a UTI. Like, I think it's like this other complicated thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it comes back that it's, um, complications from untreated diabetes. Yeah. And I have to tell you, Ricardo, that like, I, I got so mad reading that part or so upset reading that part. Because the thing that is frustrating about American healthcare is that because it's inaccessible and because it's expensive, your literal handbook did not have a very obvious diagnosis because untreated diabetes is not a thing that should exist. Right. And, I, and, and one of the things I think you say in the book is that your genetics are just as important in American health and United States healthcare as your insurance coverage, as far as outcomes, health outcomes, how do you, and, and you talk about disaster syndrome and like this feeling of helplessness and like this feeling of like burnout you talk about as like a number one symptom of disaster syndrome. How do you, Ricardo, doctor, writer, documenter of these stories, how do you deal with this shit? Because like yeah. I'm 
pissed off reading it. And I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. I'm not in Houston. I've never been to Ben Taub. I don't know these people. But like the idea that untreated diabetes was a thing that a new doctor like couldn't even fathom and that yeah. a book couldn't even contain like it's just like enraging. I I mean, my best answer to that is, is that I just focus on that person right there. Right. You know, like I you know, I'm just thinking about this last week being in, and I mean, like awful diagnoses. I mean, I'm talking awful things happen to people. I'm, you know, metastatic cancer for people who are less than 36 years old, you know, like it's just, <sighs> it's, it's, it's things that, but all I can control is like that interaction with that person that they feel like that I'm trying, that they feel that I care, that I've listened and that I, but, but more than that, also that I guide them for what I know to go through the best type of care that they can get, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the way that I get through that is, is that if I can leave that room thinking, okay, you know, that was a net positive in so far that, you know, that person, you know, that, that person knows now, at least it was a tough conversation, but he knows that this cancer is incurable. He mm -hmm. knows at least now that this is the aim of this treatment. And he knows that we're caring about how he can move his legs now, for instance. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, I, that's the way that I protect myself is just knowing that mm -hmm. like, I can, I, like, I can feel that comprehension. Like I test it, you know, and I, I talk with them about it, with people about it. And, and I can feel that they understand. And I, I, I don't, leave thinking like, you know, I'm curing that or anything, but I'm just, I just feel like, you know, that is the best that I can do in that situation. And, and I, you know, it's, it's, I hate this, but I think it's, it's one of the most rewarding parts of the job. It, mm -hmm. And it's, and it's one of the parts of the job that even though people are staring into the abyss in their lives of like this illness and sickness when they feel something like they understand something and they understand that people around them care and are trying to help that, I mean, I don't know that I, I get a, a lot of satisfaction from that. And, and that's mm -hmm. one of the reasons I work where I work is because it's, right. you know, and there's a lot of people who tell me that they just don't get that level of satisfaction um, in the private world as much uh, hmm. maybe because of the, the, like, you know, it's just really tough. There's so many different factors, but I, I care so much about that personal interaction and, 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 and that communication that that's what helps, helps me get through. Okay. I have one more thing about the contents of the book. And then I want to talk a little bit about the process. This isn't a question. This is just a statement. Um, in one of the sections you talk about maternal health rates, specifically black women. Um, and, there's this revelation in the book where I can't remember who did the research, but that the percentage of like black population is directly tied to the maternal health rates in that place. And like, you could just look yeah. at those numbers to be able to see what the maternal health rates were. And that was revelatory for me in the same way that when I found out that black people in Africa don't have high blood pressure, yeah. like it was like one of those things where I was like, holy shit, it's just the racism. Like, yeah, <laughs> like that's yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's social. It's like it's it's when you talked about social determinants of health, it's like we don't really recognize how deep these social questions go into health, you know, and I think yeah. it's I think it's going to take us even longer. I think when we 
look back on this time period 50 100 years from now we're going to we're going to we're going to kind of kind of scoff at just how little credence we gave to this idea that like our society forms our ideas of health and our health yeah i yeah. think that i think blood pressure is is a really interesting one that you mentioned diabetes i mean yes if you're living in a food desert if like how you eat who you eat with like your even philosophy about food impacts whether you're going to get diabetes or not. You know, all of that right. is more so, um, you know, not in every case because like there's genetic factors, but like in so many cases and especially for something like type 2 diabetes, which is what's really increasing like startlingly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, 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 it's our society has all of the seeds for all these illnesses, you know, and Yes, racism is a huge part of it. So is whether or not, you know, whether or not somebody can speak the language, all of that. So it's 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 one of the things that I've learned being working where I work is just that, you know, there's there's no like if we start to think that there's like a pill remedy for these things, I think we we need to really sort of visualize like how we can make life more equitable for people so that right. their health's can be but but the problem is like like you said it kind of does go back to that we're an extreme form of capitalism you know it's just yeah. it's just and so how do you how do you counteract that i don't know i don't know what the answer to that is but i think that the first part is like recognizing that yeah i mean i one of the examples that like i think about from my life is i have identical twins i had mono diet twins mm -hmm. so i had a high risk pregnancy which meant that i went to my obgyn every two weeks for basically my entire pregnancy. Wow. And I work for myself and I work for my home. And so I could schedule my life around those appointments. Yeah. And that's what I did because it was the best that I could do for my kids. But there are people who the best that they can do for their kids is going to work and making money. Exactly. And they're on a schedule and they can't make it to those appointments. And like exactly. just things like that where it's like there's so much judgment of like, oh, that person's a bad mother because she didn't go to her, you know, and it goes in her chart, like didn't come to the appointment or whatever. Right. And it's like, yeah, but she had to take three buses. And like, how is she going to get there when she works? You know, whatever. So it's like those kind of things that I think people forget about, too. And there's all this judgment about who deserves health care, because then it becomes oh, this woman's a bad mom because she didn't go to right. her appointment or it's like, okay, well, if she doesn't have a house to live in because she can't pay the rent, like what kind of mom is she going to be then? You know, like how is, how is that making her life better? Or what if she has other children and they right. have school pick? Like, it's just like so fucked up that so much moral judgment is put on people when the system is just so inequitable. And it's, it's just, it's just not there. You know, it's like, imagine if, if there was a clinic that the person could trust and that like, she didn't have to take three know, buses. <laughs> yeah, take three buses. She could just go there and like and maybe the doctors could make medical decisions about like how often she she, you know, uh, follows up and say, you know, actually, you're you're more high risk. And that's one of the reasons why I depicted my colleague, uh, Dr. Carrie Epps, is because she's making those kind of decisions in a public health care system like they can. Mm -hmm. I think. One of the things that is interesting about the history of American healthcare is that I feel like um, at some point doctors sacrificed like control over like healthcare for like money, you know, like that mm -hmm. was kind of like what happened. And in the UK, when they were forming the NHS, that was like one of like the bargaining chips, like we're going to take more control, government's going to like provide it, but, but the doctors are going to have a real say in the medical things, you know, and I just, 
I just feel like, you know, we could make things more equitable for people. Like healthcare can be an avenue to make things more equitable for people if mm-hmm. we provide access. If we just say, let's just have a public system. You can access it, you know. If you're if you're poor, here it is, you know. Like you can still get as good care. And like that could be one of the first kernels by which people can find themselves toward an equitable life, you know. Right. Okay, we have to talk about your writing a little bit. I always ask people this. How do you write? How often? Where are you? Music or no? Snacks and beverages? Rituals? All of that. Yeah. So it this changed throughout the book. Um, and honestly, all those questions are making me say like, man, I can't wait to get back to the to get to a next project because I'm kind of like trying to think of like what, what I'm going to work on next right now. And I'm just like, I miss like that, like you do have routines and everything. But I, I have an office now in my home. And interestingly enough, I, I couldn't finish this book for a long time. And, and I was just like, gosh, we were living in a very small, we, we had two kids and we were in like a, a small house, like, and, and one bathroom. And I was like, I, I have to finish the book in order to move. And then one of my friends is like, are you crazy? It's like the opposite. She was working on a book <laughs> and it had taken her eight years. And she was just like, no, it's the opposite. You have to move in order to finish the book. And, and it was mm. because the space, you know, it, like, so I have, yeah. a, have a nice space that is, when I say nice, it means it's just private and there's a desk and, and I can think there. But I usually work in the mornings. I I try to wake up early and uh, it's depending on if I'm working at the hospital. During the, the intense part parts of working on this book and I had to work, I still had to write in the morning. So I would get up at, you know, really early to work on the book and then go to work. But if I'm, if I'm off, it would it just be a little bit later. And then I work throughout the morning and I don't eat. Uh, I give myself a break to go, uh, you know, you know, drink coffee. I might have a cup of coffee with me at that time. And I have like a, and I'm just, you know, there's no music. It's, it's, and I have a board that I write on. The process is, depends on what you're doing. You know, if you're, trying to think of like how to structure things. It's like a lot of like just kind of uh, plotting things out and, and, and think work and, and hoping something comes up spontaneous. But if you're really going through like a paragraph and, and trying to make it work, I like I can sit there on that for like hours and hours and I can, mm. I can write like four to five hours a day and, and then kind of like move on. So that's kind of how, how it works for me. Okay. What's a word you can never spell correctly on the first try? That's a word, you know, there's so many <laughs> that, uh, ah, what is it? Uh, thingomanometer, which is like the, uh, to so say there's so many medical, there's, words, medi- sure. there's, there's a lot of medical ones, but that's one of the ones that's, that's blood pressure cuff. And I, and I, it's a, it, oh, and, and this, this diadiokinesia, that's another one that always gets me. Yeah. The one that I can never read is duodeno, duodenostomy. Yeah. You don't type do do Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I hear duo because you want to say du- yeah, duod. People say duodenum, duodenum, duodenum. You know, it's yeah. just, it's 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 weird. My <laughs> husband will pull up like his little medical journal and be like, "Read this, like ju ju duodenum Yeah, he thinks it's hilarious. I'm like, I'm illiterate. Okay, leave me alone. Um, just have a few moments left. I could talk to you for hours, but we're going to come off. I want to know the coolest person who's expressed interest in this book. Terry Gross was definitely one of them because she, you know, she's just a legend and I love Mm -hmm. her. And, and I mean, 
Matthew Desmond is another. Ugh, um, what a dream. He he expressed interest in the book. Yeah, I, I would say those those two. Matt, what I realized about Matthew Desmond because I met him at the San Antonio Book Festival, mm. and we found out that we're like he's he he might even I think he's one year younger than me. And I was I was like, gosh, Evicted came out a while back. I was like, I, I thought to myself, he's the LeBron James of nonfiction. You know, <laughs> he's like he's like been there forever, and he's like a master. And he's doing these incredible, like I saw him present on uh, on Poverty by America, and I was just like, this guy's he's nailed. He's like, this is his second championship that he's winning, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's like it's yeah. cool to have somebody who's a LeBron James kind of like think about your book a bit, you know? So for people who love your book, The People's Hospital, what is another book or a few other books you might recommend to them that are in conversation with your work? In conversation with my work, I would say that. The the hospital which I refer to by Jan de Hartog. Mm-hmm. It's hard to f- it's hard to find a copy. The another one is um, just because this book has been so influential on in me. But it's uh, Jacques Barzun's From Dawn to Decadence. It's about Western cultural life over the last five hundred years, and it's only because it's just like his sort of view of history helped me think about how to get that historical portion, which was really hard because you don't want it to be dry for your readers, you know? Right. You don't want to lose your readers when you're thinking about like policy and everything like that. Right. So he kind of, he like, he, he, he's like a hero in how to like put it all together. And he gave me a model for that. Um, I mean, I, I, I don't, it's hard for me to even imagine writing this book having not read the Elena Ferrante books, you know, like oh. it's, 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 I love, like those, those are just so wonderfully done. And I also think that um, a lot of Tolstoy really, and, and the, and some of the Russian authors, you know, Chekhov, especially like their short stories, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, I, again, just like the depiction of people was really mm-hmm. like that was a model for me i when i i know that i was like looking at patients and this was going to be healthcare but at the same time i was like but these are people that you have to like mm-hmm. look at the way that tolstoy depicts his you know so those are yeah. those, i have I, I think a lot of a lot of my influences are, are come more from fiction than nonfiction. so i love that okay last question if you could have one person dead or alive read this book who would you want it to be I'd say Barack Obama. And I think because I would be so interested to hear, have a conversation with him because I feel like he, he was at such, at the end of the day, I feel like the, the, the Affordable Care Act was just like this litmus test. Can we mm-hmm. do it with private health insurance? You know, can we make a system that's equitable? And I feel like it's veering toward like, no. And for a lot of mm-hmm. things that he couldn't have predicted possibly. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm interested. I would just I feel like he must have given so much effort and thought to mm. health care. And I, I would just be so interested to hear like what he, what his thoughts were about this. So I don't know. That's well, and we want to get you on his summer reading list or his <laughs> yeah. end of year reading list. Let's be honest. Also, we, we want to get you on the list, Ricardo. So we got to get the book to him. So we got to get the book to him. We got it. We got to get the. But I really do like he's. He strikes me as a person who, like, that was his that was his signature thing. It's like healthcare. He yeah. was the guy who was going to take away, take on healthcare when nobody, no, no, everybody, every politician knew that it was like a minefield. 
And right. I think he sacrificed a lot for it, you know, and, I and, and I, and I'm just so curious how he, how he sees uh, how, like just, you know, like healthcare yeah. in general and everything. So, yeah. 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 Well, also Barack Obama, I have an open invitation to come on this podcast and talk about any of that if you're available. Uh, <laughs> all right, everybody, you can get the People's Hospital wherever you get your books. I will say I read half of it and I listened to half of it, half of it on audio and it's fantastic on audio as well. Ricardo reads it. It's so good. Um, so for my audiobook people, this one gets my stamp of approval in that platform as well. Ricardo, thank you so much for being here. Tracy, thanks so much for supporting this book, for reading it, for caring about it, um, really. And and this has been a great interview. Like, your questions are awesome. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Christian, don't cut that part. Leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody else, we will see you in the stacks. All right, y'all, that does it for us today. Thank you so much for listening. And thank you again to Ricardo Nuila for joining the show. I'd also like to say thank you to Paul Samuelson for helping to make this conversation possible. Remember, Joel Christian Gill will join us on July 26th to discuss the graphic novel Watchmen by Alan Moore and Dave Gibbons for the Stacks Book Club. If you love the show and want inside access to it, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks to join the Stacks Pack. Make sure you're subscribed to The Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Spotify, be sure to leave us a rating and a review. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and TikTok and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. This episode of The Stacks was edited by Christian Duenas with production assistance from Lauren Tyree. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite and our theme music is from Tegira Gis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. Tracy Thomas.